O heavenly King, the comfort of the Spirit of Truth, who art ever present, he fills all things, treasure your blessings, and give our life. Come and abide in us and cleanse us from every impurity and save our souls, a good one. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I know I was probably a little ambitious when I said that we would basically cover like six chapters, I think, all together. But I'm also trying to be mindful of like what I was trying to commit us to time-wise. And October is an absolutely crazy month for me. So uh, we're going to try to get through it. Um, we are going over the chapter... I guess it's only really two chapters. Prayer, fasting, almsgiving, and then sexuality, marriage, and family. I assume that we're probably not going to get through it all. Uh, I also assume, or at least hope, you all have read. Has anyone read? Yes? Maybe so? No? Some of these things are like a little bit repetitious, but I feel like that's also kind of the Christian life. There's like, if you read one of the epistles, you're going <laughs> to... <laughs> read oh, oh yeah that point oh yeah that point uh, but I, I do think being introduced to like prayer I kind of talked about you need to pray but I do think that actually the, the chapter on prayer in here is pretty decent at going through and talking about um, the necessity of prayer I, I mean this quote from Saint Theophon the recluse if you're not successful in your prayer you will not be successful in anything for prayer is the root of everything um it's just, it's fine. <laughs> It'll just be off. Um, this, or that Father Hopko, when he says, all of the virtues and powers of God are attained primarily by prayer, um, there really is a very, very strong emphasis on prayer. Why, why do you think that the church has such an emphasis on prayer? As opposed to reading, as opposed to uh, like giving your stuff away. These are all things that we talk about, but like there is this intensity about prayer. Savannah, I see your hand. Is that you raising it? Because Jesus himself prayed. Yeah, he prayed his holy hours too. So there's something that comes from giving ourselves to God in prayer that I think, because like you see it a lot in Yes. I think definitely looking to Christ and have that, like the, the method that you're using, I don't know if you've been realizing of like, what did Jesus do? And I know that's a silly like armband WWJD, but like there is something beyond, deeper than the, just that kind of like blase way of thinking about it. Like we look at Jesus and we see a paradigm and model of prayer. I, basically without prayer, there is no spiritual life, right? If you don't have prayer, this is kind of like goes to the point about do all things in love. You can be versed in all of the dogmas of the church. You could be moral. You've not sinned, right? Or you, you know, but if you don't love, then it's nothing, right? Because that's not actually the end. And in fact, you may have stopped yourself from doing things, but the sins of like what you've committed versus omissions are like we usually think of what we've committed versus like what we aren't actually doing and what God actually calls us to and the fullness of what that life is and we most of us tend to like oh I broke this thing I infracted this thing but like the reality this is something I do and we'll talk about in confession a lot of our preparation for confessions use like the Ten Commandments 
as a kind of framework, but I will also point to, like, you should look at the Beatitudes or the fruit of the Spirit because generally you will find a lot of omissions where, like, something, for example, like, I'm not joyful in my Christian walk, right? I am not uh, giving. Like, I might write that check to the church, but I don't really give of my means when people are in need, right? Some of these kind of things that are flowing from a heart of love. Prayer is this baseline connection with God. We see it modeled, especially in Jesus, which is why uh, <clears throat> the real prayer, as Father Hopko, is interior prayer. It's not just what we say, right? It's actually what happens internally within our heart. And this is also why looking at Jesus, when he taught us to pray, when the disciples asked him, how do we pray? He gave them the Our Father. We, we didn't really go through the Our Father. Did we go through the Our Father when we went through the liturgy? We at least talked about the Our Father, and I think I talked about prayer. But I think some of you weren't even like at, at St. Anne's at that point, right? At least two of you, maybe three. Okay. So I highly suggest reading the section on the Our Father uh, if you have not read that section. Uh, it is lays out the Christian life perfectly, and it will help you to understand better orthodox understandings of things to just wrap your head around the Our Father. If there is a prayer that we say ad nauseum, and I don't mean that negatively, it is like the O Heavenly King and Our Father, right? That Our Father is our constant companion. Sebastian? Yeah. So I really struggled when I first learned about the meaning of the Lord's Prayer. Like, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because it's like a breathing, right? Like, in the first part of the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ is mm -hmm. like inhaling. Hmm? Yeah, the Jesus Prayer, thank you. Uh, so Christ. So. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And then the second part of the prayer, have mercy on me, a sinner, is like exhaling. So. It's like a breathing. So I see prayer as the breathing of the spirit of, of the soul. And it's like, I'm such a materialist for thinking that I can live without prayer. Like, what physical body can live without breathing? What soul can live without breathing? And yet, like, yet here I am, uh, not praying enough, not, not, not giving my soul enough life. This is crazy. I think to really own that metaphor that you're using of, like, prayer as breath, and, like, how long we hold our breath underwater and think that we're doing fine when we're turning blue and starting to go gray and blacking out and we still don't actually turn to pray uh, because it's hard or because we don't want to do it or I mean this is what the spiritual life really is it's this kind of ascesis against our will this, this is what we'll see prayer fasting almsgiving all of these things are ways of saying you are God and I'm not God right you are, I need you, what I think I can replace with you, this is just the basic idolatry motif through all of scripture, right? Uh, we just put things in place of him, and we think that we're going to be fine. But Paul tells us very clearly, when we worship the creature rather than the creator, things go really badly, right? Uh, our passions not only get inflamed, but they just set afire the whole world, right? To mix a metaphor with James when he's talking about the tongue. But there is uh, in needing to memorize prayers, to be able to give yourself time with prayer. And I'm hoping, as uh, being around the church, that this has been something, it is okay to struggle with prayer. I'm not expecting all of a sudden you're just going to like 
love God and love prayer that you're like lost in ecstasy for hours. If that's the case, you might need to tell me what the secret recipe is or something because that I, I don't expect that. And if you think that's an expectation, then that's not reality. And you are di- driving yourself to despair for something that no one expects. God, God himself does not expect you to be able to like, like cold turkey and all of a sudden all you do is like uh, pray and like have to remember to eat, right? Uh, that is not where you're going to be at. And this is something the fathers in the church very well know. We have to be trained in this. You have to slowly and surely go about it. When you stop the pattern, restart the pattern, right? If your prayer rule falls apart, don't beat yourself up about it. Just get up and do it. It's okay. God loves you. God does not stop loving you because you don't do something, right? That is never the case. If we experience his how you say the language of scripture, like his anger, wrath, it's almost always because we have gotten ourselves into a huge tangle and are confused about things. And we experience it as that way because we ourselves have not actually remembered who he really is, right? It's like a delusion or it's something that he helps us in order to move to another place. Um, as we go through, I, I highly suggest these chapters, but I assume, for example, like liturgical prayer, I think you all, you wouldn't be here at this point <laughs> if you weren't okay with liturgical prayer. In some situations, you have to, like, argue for liturgical prayer, right? That's, like, vain repetitions. I don't know if you've ever heard that. I think you brought that up at some point. Yes. Somebody saying that, like, you say, Lord, have mercy so much. Isn't that vain repetition? Uh, it's not vain, even though it is a repetition, but uh, it's also not gobbledygook, or it's, it's, it's just true. We need God's mercy. Uh, there is... Um, Meditation and then prayer in the spirit. And as prayer in the spirit, uh, I think I talked about the Trinitarian aspect. Um, I'm just going to read what Father Hopko says here real quick. All Christian prayer must be prayer in the spirit, and all genuine prayer most certainly is. Men pray to the Father through Christ the Son and Word of God in the Holy Spirit. This is the case wherever men pray, whatever their method, whether they know it or not. For prayer is not man's lonely cry across empty spaces to a far-off God. Prayer is man's being in God, being in the Holy Spirit, as made in Christ's image, the dwelling place of God. Christian prayer is unconsciously in the Holy Spirit with all faith and awareness. It is addressed to and through Christ to the Father. In the Orthodox Church, there is only one prayer among all the prayers of the Church addressed to the Holy Spirit. This is the prayer of Heavenly King, which begins all prayers and clearly creates the conditions in which all prayer is performed. So our relationship, our prayer as Christians is always done in the Spirit, right? It is always done uh, because we are baptized into Christ. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We have the relationship with God the Father through the Son, and therefore our prayer is brought to God the Father through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. That is Christian prayer, right? That is why the, the Spirit dwelling within us hears our... When we can't put words to things, it still understands and is able to bring that to God. This is Romans 8. Does anybody have any questions about prayer, even, like, practical questions? Because I have six topics to cover. <laughs> is, there, is there a wrong way to pray? You tell me. What, what, what do you think? I mean, my instinct would be no, but I'm wrong often. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to say that your your uh, percentage of wrongness is probably 
right here. As in, like, as in, like, there are things that you shouldn't pray for. You don't want to pray about sin, right? There are wrong prayers, selfish prayers. Uh, I think there's also, like, prayer where we're basically, it comes up actually in the Hopko readings where a lot of the spiritual fathers of the church you don't just pray like, I really want that, you know, F-250, you know, super duper truck thingy-ma-bopper, or I really want that, you know, new Tesla, and blah, like, and you kind of obsess about it, and then you get angry at God because he's not Santa Claus, right? I think that's really immature and not helpful. And it's probably going to throw off your faith, even if it's really immature because you're, you're, you're testing God by trying to make his faithfulness to you known through a Tesla or something, right? So I think those can all be learning opportunities, so maybe I can try and redeem it for you and say that you're right about this in the sense of, like, hopefully all those experiences of where you're praying and not a mature way can be matured and you can learn from that, but I definitely could say no to, like, you should not pray for sin. You should not pray that somebody gets killed. Or something like that. Pray for God to smite somebody. Yeah. It's not a good thing. I mean, the Psalms definitely have very strong language about God doing what he's going to do against enemies. But that's very different than saying, like, please kill, you know, my least favorite presidential uh, whoever, writer, right? Mm -hmm. You know, my, my wife and I have been praying for a patient for months, and, and God did, like, this look at her elbow. So, and sometimes the, the answer is like... Sometimes God gives you something to be even more patient about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that you are not wanting to desiring at all. Exactly. And this is why he's our father, and he... I mean, dis we have to think of discipline outside of just like getting spanked as a kid or something, right? Discipline is a much bigger, broader thing. He loves us, and therefore he puts obstacles, or he presents us, or he brings us through life and we face things in order for the dross to be burnt away. That's just scripture. It doesn't, it sucks a lot. But I also, when I look back at like sufferings that's happened in my life or my family's life, they, if they are done, if they are suffered well, then they grow, they, it grows fruit. So everything can be redeemed. Some things are just kind of there and they just, are absolutely awful and it's going to have to be we're looking to the, the end of things for it to be redeemed but most of what our life experiences are there's something that we that can be redeemed from even some of the people have suffered some of the worst tragedies and things against their body soul spirit etc after some measure of healing can say that they've learned God's forgiveness or love uh, I don't think we take those things lightly or take that as trite type thing because it's earned through a heck of a lot of suffering. It's very easy to sit here and talk about this as I'm like have my legs crossed and drinking coffee and I have, there's so much cake out there, right? Like, <laughs> but it's that's what that's one of the things about church is like we have the joy of the resurrection, but we also weep with those who weep, like that we are with and beside uh, Archbishop Daniel, the uh, Archbishop of Chicago, the Diocese of the Midwest just put out. Um, He's been doing pastoral letters, you could call them encyclicals, um, about uh, this upcoming feast in the Tivity of the Theotokos uh, and talking about being with those who are, who are in pain. Uh, that was the basic gist of that we as Christians, because we have the hope of the resurrection, we can actually be and sit and be with somebody who is suffering because we have hope.
that doesn't mean we just gloss over everything and say like, just smile. No, you can. We can be in the grave with somebody because Christ is there. Where can we go? This is Psalms, right? I'm not just saying that rhetorically. I'm quoting scripture, right? If I go into Hades, you're there. If I go into the heavens, you're there. He's everywhere. He's present. Filling all things. <laughs> all right. Any other questions about prayer? Yeah, I have a question about prayer. Um, yeah. To what extent is it beneficial to just like do your prayer role as a discipline versus like is there benefit in being like, okay, I don't feel like doing this. I know my mind is going to be entirely distracted the entire time. But I'm just going to stand here and read these words because this is my like discipline of prayer. Yes. To that. Mm -hmm. okay. Now, is that the greatest thing? No. no. Is it good to have the discipline of doing it? Just kind of like coming to church. There's some Sundays, I'm sure, you roll out of bed and you're like, man, I could just do brunch. <laughs> I could call up some friends. I could just finish that series I was watching. <laughs> but it's good for you to, oh, I just, or something awful has happened, right? Uh, but I, I think maintain that prayer. Does that mean that you need to do a 15-minute prayer rule? No. Does that mean there are times where prayer ebbs and flows? Yes. But keeping consistent, if you forget it in the morning, because you know it's one of those mornings where you hit snooze 15 times, and all of a sudden you actually realize what time it is, and then you roll out of bed, and then your kids are crazy, and then da -da -da, and then you're just like, they have to go to school. This might sound familiar. I don't know what it does to me. Uh, and you're like, we literally have to be there in 30 seconds where I'm going to have to get out of the car, go inside. It's going to take another 15 minutes. Okay? Yeah, sometimes morning prayers doesn't happen. Does that mean later do it and that evening go back to it? Yeah. The discipline in of itself is kind of like marriage. You're married, and there's ups and downs, and there are times where you're just like, did I make a good decision? <laughs> and then you usually get over that, or like you remember, right? Because you have to experience the feelings, but there's still like, I'm still going to be faithful. I'm not gonna just run away. I'm, I'm gonna deal with this. So God understands. I, I don't think, this is not God as dictator. This is God, I really have grown quite like God as pedagogue, as teacher as one who is the lover of our souls and wants to guide us along as coach. I used last night, uh, my son Joseph uh, is doing cross country right now, which if, if you all know who Joseph is, he's one of the altar boys. He's not what I would think as the paragon of a cross country runner. He's kind of, he's built more like me, which is like, he should be like a football lineman or something, even though we're too short. But um, he did cross country yesterday. He had his first meet. I think he'd only been running for like a week and a half like going out with a team and I was just the whole time I'm just like he has no idea what he just got himself into you know he's gonna run a mile it's 93 degrees outside and uh, he did it he did not finish in the top half and that's perfectly fine he finished which is exactly like that's awesome but the reason I bring it up is not just to randomly talk about Joseph running <laughs> but because I could see there was this point because we're in Knoxville where you know he they ran back in the hills and they run back and his coach was running alongside of him on the side in order, because she'd been doing this, even at, uh, during practice, to kind of encourage him. And so she was keeping pace with him and encouraging him to run because he just started walking at some point, which I don't blame him, <laughs> right? But just seeing that, I was just like, that's exactly what God does with us. 
he keeps pace with us, and he's like, go, go, it's okay. Like, I'm right beside you. That, that is who God is. Not the distant guy who's like, oh, you didn't do your morning prayers this morning. <laughs> it's like, yes, I want you to do your morning prayers. But that's not, right? That's not, you got to banish that. And part of it, like that, that's not God. That voice, if you hear that voice, like self-condemnation and stuff, that is not God. That is, uh, well, I would just say it's the devil, right? Okay? It is the self. And what is Satan? He's the accuser. He's the one accusing you, wanting you to make you feel like him. So, just say, not today. <laughs> right? And that's why the Jesus prayer. Like, you come back, Jesus. Back, Jesus. Back. Distraction, back. Okay? Fasting. Where have your guys' experience with fasting been so far? Some of you may not have much experience with it, and that's fine. Anyone practice fasting outside of or before encountering orthodoxy? Like intermittent fasting or just like as a spiritual discipline or self-health? I almost said self-exploration, but I meant health. Health is a better way to say it than self-exploration. <laughs> I did it as a spiritual thing, but usually it was total fasts. Mm-hmm. I'd never done like a vegan Right. Yeah, I remember growing up, the idea of fasting was definitely like, I mean, we read scripture, right? We never fasted. <laughs> we talked about it because it was in scripture. And Jesus assumes that we're fasting. That's how he talks in the Sermon on the Mount. What the church does in giving us, I'll say rules. So we also have to play with rules because a lot of us think of rules, just like I've talked about law. Like, it doesn't mean the same thing that a lot of us think when we think of rules. Rules are like guidelines, right? Like best practices things that are necessary and helpful for you. Uh, are there times in your life where you might ask me and say, like, there's a major fast coming up, but I'm pregnant, right? Well, three of you, right? Like, then, yeah, then we will, we will work with the fast. And it might be something that a spiritual discipline of some kind of fasting gets shifted over somewhere else. Uh, the church in giving us kind of expectations of fasting uh, it also means that we're doing it corporately. You're not doing it on your own. And there is basic guidelines. Some people's diets and other things, you might talk to me about it, and we, we move things around because of th- stuff that's going on in your life. Or maybe there's a medical condition, right? Some people, it's like, I can't eat bread. Well, like, I know a lot of people when they fast, bread is one of the things. So one of the things I will say about fasting, and these are, these are some just practical things. As Americans... We eat a ton of meat, and we eat a ton of sugar and bread. And what fasting can be is an opportunity to actually blow up like a blimp. <laughs> because you can replace everything with just a bunch of carbs, right? You can pasta and bread yourself to death and be within... I mean, well, I became Orthodox in college, and you can imagine what a college kid's <laughs> eating habits are like. So ramen, awesome. <laughs> Peanut butter and jelly sandwich, awesome. Uh, spaghetti without meatballs, right? Like just repeat. <laughs> so that what I wish that I had done more, and it's just looking back on a lot of it, is just because we're not trained. Like I highly recommend, and this takes time. This is why I think I've talked about with fasting, like if you can't yet cut out meat all the way, especially in people's different living situations, then just cut it down to like you're having meat at that dinner meal with whoever you're with, but at breakfast and lunch, 
so what I would encourage increase vegetables thank God you have Google now because you can Google and you can find all sorts of vegan meals and you don't have to go crazy what I mean by that the spirit of the fast you can eat lobster to your heart's content according to the like rules of the fast but if you're spending 50 60 dollars a meal you're not in the spirit of the fast like uh, you are beyond you can eat shrimp at every single meal shrimp is not cheap right I'm not saying don't eat shrimp but I'm also saying like you can be as decadent as possible and follow the fast you can be completely dairy meat free use no oils and you aren't fasting at all you just change your diet part of the fasting and I encourage it like eat less food generally eat healthy food that might actually be a fast for some of us to actually retrain our desires because that's what fasting is all about it's retraining our desires it's being able to limit ourselves and say no right because we're used to just to stay say no to that consuming and be able in our stomach being feeling that little I'm hungry to turn that desire towards God uh, increase your vegetables and fruit it's good for you anyways uh, people actually advertise like and there's even been books written about the, the Mount Athos are you guys familiar with what Mount Athos is it's a monastic republic it's the best way to describe it in Greece uh, where they basically say like here's the Athenite like diet or like it's a Greek diet like on steroids right uh, I wish you could buy the little octopus and things and squid that they eat because it's actually really good but uh, you gotta put it over a charcoal but it is still good for you even if you know and eat less does that mean that there's gonna be times where your life is crazy and it's the middle of a fast and you go through Taco Bell and they have cheese on the bean burrito or something or other or a thing or this has happened to me where I went through Burger King to get that impossible burger <laughs> which is a sodium bomb, but okay, it, it follows the fast, basically. And when I walked away, that bag was not an Impossible Burger. That was a double Whopper bacon cheeseburger, <laughs> oh. chicken fries, <laughs> and something else. And I was halfway down the road, I'm like, thank you, God, and I just ate. <laughs> because so it's an accident, somebody? Yeah, they just they gave me the wrong order, oh, and I no. drove away. Oh. And I had to get where I was going, and I was just like, I guess God just gave me a cheeseburger. Like, I'm not, like, if I, and I was really hungry otherwise, like, maybe I would have kept it the next day. But it was just, it's, this is not a pharisaical, like, rule keeping for the sake of keeping rules so that you get justified or made righteous. That is not what create, makes you righteous. Okay? It is the training, again, it is the training of your desires. Oh, and that day you call somebody else to fast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or not. So one of the one of the things actually that I wanted to um, that yeah now I caught up with you, Rudy Gregory. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm going to read these stories so that it just doesn't sound like I'm just making things up here and saying like, don't take this seriously. I am. You you should take fasting seriously, right? Like this is part of the tradition of the church. And I'm not trying to say like make every excuse in the book. I, I'll hear this often from Orthodox Christians like, well, we're not monks, so. Well, yeah, yeah, if you're not monks, but we're Orthodox Christians. This is what we do. And it is better to start that habit, just like prayer, just like almsgiving, like these things. It shapes you over time, okay? 
So I'm going to read these stories from the Desert Fathers. A certain brother brought fresh loaves of bread and invited his elders. When they had eaten much, the brother, knowing their travail of abstinence, began humbly to beg them to eat more. For God's sake, eat this day and be filled. And they ate another ten. Behold how these that were true monks and sincere in abstinence did eat more than they needed for the sake of God. Epiphanius, bishop of Cyprus, called the abbot Hilarion to see him. A portion of fowl, a bird, was set before them. The bishop invited the abbot to eat. The old man said, Forgive me, Father, but since the time I took this habit, I've never eaten anything that has been killed. That is, is a monastic thing. Monks, Orthodox monks do not eat meat. And Epiphanius said to him, And from the time I took this habit, I have, not let, I have let no man sleep who has anything against me, and neither have I slept holding anything against anyone. And the old man said to him, Forgive me, Father, for your way of life is greater than mine. So you can see these are the sayings of the Desert Fathers. This is what they'd be reading at the trapeza, like when they come together after the Divine Liturgy, they will read these stories, they read them themselves. So like you see here, the mind of the church is not fast, no matter what. But you have somebody who's supposed to, they're eating to excess because it was made for them, and they're said like, you need this for your sustenance. And then another story where there's a comparison of someone who does not hold wrongs and will not let it, you go to sleep and then, like, a repentance before that and saying, like, your way of life is greater than mine. And then eating the chicken. There's very many stories of holding severe fasts. Visitors come and they deck the table with food and they join in in eating. And then as soon as they leave, they go right back to the fasting. Because, again, the, the fasting is not about a show, right? The fasting is not, especially this is just straight Jesus right now. Like, don't fast, make, make yourself look like you're fasting, right? You know, when you go to somebody's house on a Friday night who's invited you over, you don't be like, I can't partake of the burgers that you've made on the grill. I brought my own peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And, you know, like, don't do that. <laughs> That's just silly. Eat the burger. But give glory to God. You're not like you're not defiling yourself because you are enjoying the hospitality of somebody else. Now, the spirit of like just going like I'm going to go someplace out to eat in order to like oh there's no options okay right that's the other direction right just like I don't give a flying flip you know all right we still have time alms giving anybody have questions about alms giving it's kind of like fasting and prayer it's a sacrifice it's an offering. God and is something that is is one of the things that's over my eyes. The Old Testament talks about this a lot, actually. It is in the law uh, that you are to give, right? Uh, and is very strong in the fathers because it's actually very strong in the Old Testament that almsgiving is a path of salvation. It is something that you are like basically putting money into the, your salvation account. That's how the fathers will use that language. According to St. John system, no one can be saved without giving alms, without caring for the poor. St. Basil the Great says that a man who has two coats or two pair of shoes when his neighbor has none is a thief. Uh, so the challenge, I think, with almsgiving that comes up uh, is always the question of, <laughs> in modern life, we have the poor very often sequestered away or, like, we like even legally make them or enforce space uh, and one of the things I think Father Thomas does well here with alms 
is because he talks about this at the end of like there's a sense and he says that we should participate in trying to make things just for people he doesn't get really specific about that because that's a gray area where everybody can debate about the best policies for those kind of things right um but he says that the spirit of almsgiving is always a sacrificial act. It is something that actually you personally are sacrificial for. So if we create an entire welfare system that actually works at some point, uh, that does not, from a Christian point of view, negate us giving alms. Because it still requires of us some kind of sacrificial giving on our part. Just because the system or because we have a high tax I'm trying not, this is not political, I'm just trying to talk about the, like, just because that is the way, direction of things go, if, if that even stays that way, you know, it is still something, because you need that face-to-face -face interaction, you need the ability of actually sacrificing for the sake of someone else. Um, so Father Thomas at the end says, uh, we cannot give merely what is left over when all our needs are satisfied, one must take from oneself and give to others. In the spiritual tradition of the church, it is the teaching that what one saves through fasting and abstinence, for example, during the special Lenten season, should not be kept for other times, but should be given away to the poor. So one of the things, this is especially true in the Lenten season, and it's in the hymnody and we sing it, uh, it is about as we're fasting, so that means our grocery bill is, is lower, that money is something that we then put aside and we give to the poor. It's built into the season itself. Yes. I have a question. Sure. So, I'm sure many share in the uh, in the experience of growing up, just hearing the word alms in a context of like, you know, old movies or plays. You know, the poor person on the side of the road with a cup saying alms, alms, alms for, for the, the poor, poor yeah. that sort of thing. Um, I never even really heard the word um, alms giving until um, the Orthodox Church. Um, obviously, context clues. You know, I know what it entails, but is the term almsgiving kind of an umbrella term, including your tithe and offering, giving? I mean, what's the like channel of almsgiving, or are there several? I think there's several. I think giving to the church is a sacrificial act of giving, but I think almsgiving is something above and beyond just giving to the church. Because that there are things that the church, and I think there's ways you can think about almsgiving. Uh, part of this is just the, the interpretation of the gap of time from like 4th century Antioch, where St. John Chrysostom, or like 4th century Cappadocia, where St. Basil were. I'm not trying to downgrade what they're saying, because I think they're, what they're saying is, but we live in a very different social reality. Uh, so I think that requires us to be more imaginative and creative and possibly trying to, by imagining creative, like how can we live our life differently? How can we be around people, provide meals for, like there are things that we need to be creative about. This is one thing I think St. Anne's uh, can definitely grow in. A lot of it, like we are really restrained in our space and we are a super commuter parish. And so these are again, these like, so our reality, like you're a super commuter, right? <laughs> you're coming from an hour and change away, right? That rate, that, Distance. I, I think this means. I would. These are things I would suggest. Neighbors, when they're in need, what almsgiving I could see of like neighbors who uh, maybe have kids that need to be watched every once in a while, and not charging them in order. You know, not expecting or taking pay in order to watch their kids, or 
I mean, this might sound silly, like dogs doing uh, acts of kindness and not asking for pay, repayment mm -hmm. for those you actually engage with. That also requires you actually engage with your neighbors. Because mm -hmm. uh, in this world, in this time, a lot of us don't engage with people. We like get out of our, our houses and we go get in our little, m little mini sealed <laughs> cars and we drive off to a place and get out of that sealed and we walk into, you know. Uh, I do think giving towards the church and that the church has things that are directed towards in situations like what we're trying to do with gathering shorts for folks. And it's a way to be able to spend some money and give directly, although you might not see those people. And it's also the part of the reality of our social, our, our society now. Um, I think if there are ways which people found some um, avenues to help folks, uh, we have such a bureaucratic system of helping people, and often giving money straight can sometimes not be helpful, and that it's better to use some of the system. But at the same time, I go, I'm like two minds on this, because I also think that you should still give, and you shouldn't really think that much about the person who's asking. Criticism even talks about this. Yeah. Just a one, one observation here, and actually, this is my idea. This is something Father Daniel told me. I mean, you'll you'll see people panhandling on the side of the road, especially if you like right off the interstate. Yeah. Okay, and you're reluctant to give them a ten or twenty because, uh, okay, you're you're thinking, okay, then they might go buy drugs with us, with that, whatever else. But you can always go and get a stack of Subway gift cards, McDonald's gift cards, and 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 buy the person a meal with that. Give the person food that way, and that and that's that's something that that my family and I try to do during during uh, Lenten seasons, just uh, help people that way. There, there are all kinds of ways you can help people. Um, I've tried giving. I think I forget where it was. A situation where I think I had a bunch of canned food and some other things, and guy was asking for food, and so like gave him some of the stuff that I actually had because I didn't have cash on me, like threw it at the car. <laughs> it's just like there's situations where you have these experiences or like giving, I think I gave somebody once like 20, 30 bucks and they saw that I still had more cash in my wallet and they wanted everything in my wallet. And I'm just like, am I getting mugged? Like, <laughs> I just can't. I'm like, I was a college student at the time. Like, this is literally like a tenth of everything that I have. <laughs> so I, 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 I think... Those experiences can burn us and make us be like, nope, I'll be honest, this is a place I struggle with this. Because there's folks who come to the church all the time and will ask for stuff. And because I've experienced this too, they'll come again and again. And it's always there's new stories. And I just, I just don't want to hear the stories anymore because I just know half, most of the time my chain is being yanked. That's fine. At a certain point, I'll give. And this is why we have kind of rules of the parish. Like we will help to a certain point. And then there are lots of other churches and there's lots of other things. But we're still giving and then there's a point where it's just like, this is the limit of the rules that we have unless there's an extraordinary need. Within the church, and I think scripture talks about this too, there is a sense of definitely give outside the church, but there's a priority too in scripture of like those in the household of God that we take care of. Because there's an accountability and there's a reality in the relationship there. Um, we should move on to the most exciting section of the entire morning, uh, sexuality. Uh, does anyone have any questions about sexuality? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You know, I, what I suggest, I'm just going to read aloud the whole chapter because I think it is, it, it is written well. We're probably only going to hit sexuality today. Well, for the rest of the class. Um, 
The sexual, does, it, does anybody else want to read along with this while I'm reading this? Yeah. I thought I had no in here. I do. Does anyone else? Because I could pull it up on my phone. All right, it's page 146, Emerson. I think some of these lines might be sur surprising to some of you, and we'll, we'll have to talk about it. The sexual character of human persons has a positive role to play in human spirituality. Like all things human, sexuality must be sanctioned by God and inspired with the Holy Spirit and used for the purposes God has intended. And like all things human, through its misuse and abuse, sexuality can be perverted and corrupted, becoming an instrument of sin rather than the means of glorifying God and fulfilling oneself as made in his image and according to his likeness. So here's from 1 Corinthians 6. This is the, what, I, what we were talking about during the homily. Uh, where Paul goes on about sexual immorality that's within the congregation in Corinth. The body is not meant for immortality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one. That's an echo of Genesis. That's a quote quoting from Genesis. But he who is united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun immorality. Every other sin which a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So you can see Paul very clearly uh, indicates uh, sexual immorality is something that is a sin against your body and your body is a temple and to join yourself with someone outside of marriage is to commit sin it is to sin against your own body because it's a misuse of what your body is for right because he assumes all of this the two shall become one flesh he's talking about marriage right so to have two bodies come together outside of marriage is outside of what God's purposes are, okay? So, continue with Father Thomas. The teaching of St. Paul about sexuality is analogous to his teaching about eating and drinking and all bodily functions. This is part of the reason I didn't feel bad about doing fasting and almsgiving and prayer and then hitting sexuality because this is all interconnected. They are given by God for spiritual reasons to be used for his glory. In themselves, they are holy and pure. When misused or adored as an end in themselves, they become the instruments of sin and death. The Apostle specifically says that all sexual perversions have as their direct cause man's rebellion against God. There he's quoting from Romans 1. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a base mind and to improper conduct. Though they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but approve those who practice them. 
that those who do such things deserve to die was taken literally, this is me reading Father Thomas now, and not reading Romans, that those who do such things deserve to die was taken literally in the law of Moses. Adulterers, homosexuals, incestuous people, and those committing sexual acts with beasts were ordered to be put to death. Leviticus 20, 10 through 16. And following this teaching, while hoping on the mercy of God and the forgiveness of Christ for all sinners, the New Testament scriptures are even more strict in their demands regarding sexual purity. Jesus, who forgave the woman taken in adultery and the repentant, the repentant, repentant, sorry, <laughs> harlot who washed his feet with his hair, gave the following teaching in his Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, right? Again, going back to Leviticus, uh, the Old Testament scriptures, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is what Father Thomas is talking about, that the more strict demands. This goes beyond acts. This goes to the heart, right? If your right eye uh, causes you to sin, pluck it out throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Is he talking about actually physically harming yourself here? No, this is Lord, our Lord talking hyper, hyperbolic speech, hyperbole, where you say something incredibly strong to say like, you really need to take this seriously. If you have something that's is making you stumble, you need to deal with it. If you, it is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of unchastity, makes her an adulteress, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The Apostle Paul says simply that unrepentant adulterers, fornicators, and homosexuals will not enter the kingdom of God. This is from 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, and Galatians 5, 19. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the immoral and the adulterous. Hebrews 13, 4. According to the revelation of God, sexual relations are holy and pure only within the community of marriage, with the ideal relationship being that between one man and one woman forever. Those who are not married and those who choose by the will of God not to marry must abstain from all sexual relations since such relations cannot possibly fulfill the function given to the sexual act by God in creation. This does not mean that there will be no sexual character to the unmarried person's spiritual life, for the unmarried man and the unmarried woman will still express their humanity in masculine and feminine spiritual forms. The virtues and fruits of the Spirit in each, as in those who are married, are identical, but the manner of their incarnation and expression will be proper to the particular sexual form of their common humanity, as well as the individual u uniqueness of each person. I'm going to stop there for a second because I just went through a whole lot. Does anyone have any questions about this? Part? Yes. Yeah, so I have a friend who um, had a really bad spell in her life, and she is she was married... And I think still might technically be married by the vagaries of like getting a signature. Okay. But she also, I mean, she's trying to turn everything around, but she's also not trying to be with her original husband because right. he is now, I won't say he's completely lost, but just from a bird's eye level, you got, you know, There's you can't issues. have it anymore. Um, so what if she, even if she succeeds in getting a divorce and she gets married, what does Jesus' words mean in that sort of context when he's talking about, you know, marrying someone who's divorced is adultery? So, the ideal, as Father Thomas is saying, this is also uh, echoed in the teaching of St. Basil, that it is, the ideal is one marriage, period. Uh, 
the church over time has allowed, and this is pretty early on, uh, I'm talking within the church, right? So the world is kind of its own thing. Uh, but the church allows for a, a second marriage to occur. Now, if there is going to be a second marriage within the church, that is something that has to be blessed by the bishop. Uh, I'm just going to give you a rundown. The part of the reason I want to go over these chapters so that people know when they're getting in what exactly the church teaches and thinks about these things, because it's something that might not seem primary. We're talking about prayer and like the liturgical cycle, and then like this stuff matters. Like uh, if you were to be divorced or you're coming in already divorced or situations, you need to know what the church thinks, right? So in order to be married a second time in the Orthodox Church, you have to write to the bishop and explain basically why this marriage will be good for you. Uh, and the bishop, like, I have to basically vouch, the priest has to vouch for that this will be good. Uh, it can be blessed by the bishop, but it is not the original marriage ceremony. There are specific penitentiary prayers that are put into it. Uh, and in the canons, it specifically even has the priest is not supposed to attend the, the like wedding party afterwards because there's a sense of like this is a concession and it is something that is allowed but it is not optimal this can happen a th a third one more time after the second and that is rare and it really depends on like some serious circumstances happening if you have for example like we don't bless divorces uh, there are some Orthodox churches because of the vagaries of history uh, they will do ecclesiastical divorces this has to do with the vagaries of history I'll just say that for the sake of time uh, but for in the OCA we don't like do certificates of divorce or something like that it is basically we see something dissolve and it dissolves there's not a blessing there's, uh, there can be penances and other things that can be attached to situations and pastoral care that happens through all of that uh, but a second marriage is something that third marriage is like fourth marriage is an absolute no there's no way that you can be blessed to have so this is very clear in the canons of things like like how old like why do you want to be married a fourth time like how old like it's almost like implying like really guy like <laughs> you need to be married a, a fourth time like you can attend to other things in your life besides this okay so there is a sense i think of that seriousness of like that first marriage the saint basil is very clear like that is the marriage if something happens there can be a second marriage a third in extreme situations a third could be blessed but a fourth is just like there's no way if you were to marry outside of the church so here's another like Marriage in the Orthodox, I'm getting into the next thing about marriage instead of just sitting on sexuality, but this is all kind of intertwined, okay? Um, we can do marriages in the OCA between an Orthodox Christian and a Trinitarian Christian. There could be a, a wedding. Uh, I, but they have to be a baptized Trinitarian believing, like I asked for a, birth, a baptismal certificate, not a birth certificate. That's the state. I don't care. Like, but a baptismal certificate because, and that I don't think it's it's op, it's not optimal, uh, but it is something that can again needs a blessing of the bishop in order to occur. But the ideal is you're marrying another Orthodox Christian, and it is something that this is for life. Life does happen. Sin creeps in. Divorce does happen. And the church just 
doesn't ignore it or try to make the Roman church is really confusing to me on this point because they create a huge bureaucratic thing on the side of annulments and the whole process that I, I to me just seems like sophistry from the outside it <laughs> where it's basically like this marriage never happened I'm like I've debated with canon lawyers over that it's it's absurd to me we do not do annulments annulments is where you basically say this marriage actually never happened or is never actually I'm not using the correct canonical language here I'm sure it is very highly technical this is where I start thinking about pausing there it's very Jesuitical void ab initio is the term so if there was not a consummation of a marriage as in what we were just talking about, the two becoming one flesh, that could be grounds for like there wasn't like the marriage was never actually fulfilled, and that could actually be something. Even I'm not going to speak out of turn for Orthodox canon law, but that would be a question I would have to bring up to to canonists in the Orthodox Church about what do, how do, does this actually constitute a marriage? Also comes up legally. Yeah. So because guess what our <laughs> laws are based out of canon law. A lot of uh, American law is based out of common law, and common law comes out of canon law. Okay, so the reality of all these situations is that there they can be redeemed. There are things that can be repented of. There are things that can be worked through, but there are still boundaries and limits. Uh, there's also don't get uh, even if you're thinking just I'm going to get married by the state and it doesn't really count in the church. Like it does count in the church because the ch- the church. See, because when you think about the third century, where were these pagans who are walking around who are married? Like they, we respected and honored the marriage that was there. It was like when somebody comes into the church, uh, if they're already married coming into the church, they're not going to have a wedding ceremony again. In the OCA, we don't do that. I know the Antiochian and maybe even the Greek context, they might do crownings, but it doesn't really make sense because they're already married, and God respects the marriage as a marriage by natural law. Like they, they are married. So, does that answer? It really depends on what, like, from a church's standpoint, like, it really depends on what she was going to do within the life of the church and what the priest works out with her. Yeah, I mean, I, she more basically asked my opinion on it, and me, and I'm not a priest or anything, so my... I mean, if she's going to church, is she going to church somewhere? Uh, she's one of those, uh, she's, I, she's I working Jesus through in it. My heart. Yeah, Jesus knows me and loves me for who I am, and I'm working on that. Yeah, we need the boundaries and the guidance of the church. Yes. Otherwise, it's just a free for all. Yeah. Well, you see, I usually have a can. I hate to call it that, but a general response is, well, maybe if you pray, you can work it out with the, the your first husband, and the original marriage can be good. It is possible those things do happen sometimes. I mean, if there's physical abuse, that is one of those. That, like, there are boundaries and there's limits where, like, I will also say for if a marriage is starting to go, you know, the downward spiral have a serious separation like there are th- like steps in order to slow down to where divorce is not the immediate like mm. parachute out like that should not be a Christian's point of view there needs to be try- st- trying to stick through it but there are certain situations that are irreparable situations mm. and church has a- accepted that and understands that that is a reality instead of trying to do in my opinion sophistry of you know going to make a huge Jesuitical argument about how this marriage never really was. It's just like, <laughs> I don't get it. 
because they're I get why they want to honor exactly what scripture like there's a, a marriage is like there's an eternal aspect to that first marriage so okay uh was there any other questions about the sexuality I have a sort of quick one uh so in regard to these practices you have abstinence chastity celibacy can you I think abstinence is pretty well understood but can you briefly but properly define celibacy and chastity so I mean a celibate is one who's completely abstinent uh chastity you can so the virtue if we're talking about virtues virtues in this aspect chastity is the virtue in regards to sexuality so one can have a chaste relationship in marriage I think he even says this at the end of the sexuality bit and then this, and this translation says ground of, ground of unchastity grounds of unchastity sorry where are you at at the bottom of page 147 I, I actually haven't seen this translated this way before but I find it interesting uh, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of unchastity yeah that's adultery right so I think that I mean, chastity is sexual continence. It means uh, sex within the marriage. But so, if somebody goes outside of the marriage for sexual things, right. that is grounds for divorce. Right. Um, where is it that he? Yeah. All right, here it is. The bottom of one forty-nine. The teaching here is clear. People can serve God and live the spiritual life both in marriage and in the single life. And people can sin in both as well. Each has his own special gift from God. St. Paul thinks, however, that among those who want to do as perfectly as they can, they who do not marry will do better. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, right? This language of like, there is um, those who are chased for the sake of the kingdom. Uh, there are, this is the monastic ranks, basically. Um This is not, I think, this is where it is. It's in the marriage section. All right, this is the very end of marriage when we talk about uh, sexuality within marriage. And Father Thomas, I think, does a good job here. We don't, we're already out of time. <laughs> uh, of talking about that sexuality in marriage does not mean that it is game on, everything is ago it doesn't matter because you're married right. uh, that there are pure acts uh, within marriage and there can be impure acts within marriage that the, uh, the marriage bed being undefiled does not mean again like everything is cool uh, if you want me to be more specific I can be more specific I don't really want to be super specific because I feel like okay. that's just can you be right. gen really general with it things need to go where they naturally go <laughs> That's good enough, yeah. Okay? Yeah. Thank you. Amen. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. I didn't have to be vulgar. No. Okay. That was great. <laughs> Threaded the needle. <laughs> All right. So, sexuality in pure marriage is pure, for the apostle says, the, the sexual act within marriage is something that is, it, it is about communion and love. It is not the sexual act itself, Right. You can be, you can have sexual relations in marriage, and they can be pure lust, right? That's not what is. That is not the aim or the goal. So 
There are those whose marriages are impure because they are corrupt and unbelieving, unfit for any good deed. Even though they are married and the sexuality is, as they say, legal, nevertheless is ungodly and impure. The fact that a couple is legally or even sacramentally married does not make their marital life pure and free from sinful passion, perversion, and lust. Only those who truly live the spiritual life in genuine love and devotion have sexual lives that are holy and pure, mutually satisfying and fulfilling and well-pleasing to God. This is guaranteed when the spiritual life is in Christ and the church. But as St. John Chrysostom has said, even heathen marriages this is, are holy and pure when true love is present, and the couples are eternally given to one another in an unending fidelity and mutual devotion. For where such love is present, there is the presence of God. So in the church, there is not this sense of like, just because you have been married within the church, everything is good and grand and everything's going to be great. No, there's still you dying to yourself. Uh that there is, especially Paul's very explicit, like you do not deny one another in marriage unless you spend time in prayer and fasting, that you agree to do those things. Um, yes? I read this beautiful quote a few days ago from Twitter. From, I, I can't remember the name of the saint, but he basically said, do you want to know how to be married in a, in a Christian way? Practice being the wife of Christ. It's like, wow, that's it's so, so there. There, there is a need for a relationship that even goes down, and the sexual is the fruit of what their marriage is like, right? And that it is not just, it's like everything in the Christian life, it's not just a physical thing. It is to be transcended and transformed, not transcended, transformed by love. That is the self-offering of person to person, that there is communion that occurs. Uh, there is a debate around this, especially if you were to start talking to Roman Catholics, where they will say the sexual act, the only, the, like the telos of the sexual act is just children. And then you get into a huge mess really quickly because some people can't have children. So should they just stop, a couple should stop having relations because they can't have children? And St. John Chrysostom, at least in the Fathers, there, there is that line where they talk about that. But there's also St. John Chrysostom, he sees it as and it's something that Father Thomas talks about there's a consolation and there's a reality of the fruit of a, a couple even if they cannot have uh, children that is still there but it is not a pursuit for the passion just in and of itself it's not just a, it's not a lust thing it should be something that is transformed from lust into communion yeah. and the longer you're married the more that you understand that yeah <laughs> <laughs> Because if you're not married, you think like, oh yeah, this is like no marriage makes all of that. You've seen the comedies and all this. So it's just more complicated. Life is not easy. It's just because you get married does not room. mean like <laughs> sex <laughs> life is just like there and whatever's going. It it requires all of the spiritual life has to be present for things to work well. To be vulnerable, to be able to talk about stuff, to be able to be loving and giving and all of that stuff, and not just be like I'm a man, I demand whatever. Like, no, that's what. <laughs> you've lost, like you missed the whole point, right? That, I mean, this, this, the spirituality of all of this, and it's like, okay, this is spiritual. Yeah, it is. There is a need uh, in that context. It's why the marriage bed is so that if there's the fruit of children, you have the stability and the love of the family that then there's the ground for that relationship. Um, so if there's any questions, we, I can definitely field these. I still want to talk a little bit about marriage uh, and some family things, and then we'll talk about sickness, suffering, and death. 
Okay, I highly recommend going through these chapters because I think Father Thomas wrote them very well. And the thing that I thought was a little bit surprising is that maybe like that sexuality has a positive place to play in someone's spirituality. Because I think a lot of us, when we think about spirituality and sexuality, we kind of like put a ravine between them and just say like, that's the thing over there. And then there's like my spiritual life, but that they actually are connected and they, it matters immensely. Okay. All right. Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to enlighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you, guys.